Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. People in HR development who are actually looking into the spirituality will be more effective if they go through the process themselves. Nothing beats that experience because that brings up the wisdom. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our third season, we're exploring the relationship between HRD and other topics and disciplines with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. Today, our focus is the relationship between HRD and spirituality. And our guest scholars are Dr. Judy Neal of the Global Consciousness Institute, Dr. Julia Storberg Walker of the George Washington University, and Suki Tai of the Aitia Institute, all of whom join me for conversations recorded during May and July of 2022. Our episode today is structured into two halves. In the first 30 minutes, we look at what we mean by the term spirituality and its relationship to work and the workplace. And then in the second 30 minutes, we explore the relationship between spirituality and HRD. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode, the three guest scholars, and also the episode sponsor by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash spirituality. Talking of sponsorship, Human Resource Development Masterclass is only made possible thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series, and so enable us to release them free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Board of the Academy of Human Resource Development, which encourages you to attend its 30th annual research conference in the Americas, being held in Minneapolis, Minnesota, March 1st to 4th, 2023. It's the ideal opportunity to meet leading scholars, practitioners, and rising stars, including many of the guests featured in this podcast series, as they report their cutting-edge research and share insights on rethinking the meaning of work. The event is perfect for learning and networking, and AHRD is an inclusive organization that invites all of those who are interested in the field, no matter where they are on their scholarly journey. Mark your calendar for 2023 in Minneapolis. We look forward to seeing you there. For further details, visit the AHRD homepage at ahrd.org. Right, let's dive into the episode. Welcome to our episode on HRD and spirituality. Let's start by meeting today's three guest scholars. And first, I'd like to welcome Judy Neal, Executive Director of the Global Consciousness Institute. Judy has a PhD from Yale and was the founding director of the Center for Faith and Spirituality in the Workplace at the University of Arkansas. Judy serves on the boards of several organizations related to workplace spirituality and global consciousness and co-founded the Management, Spirituality and Religion Interest Group at the Academy of Management. Judy has authored eight books on workplace spirituality and transformation and is president of Edgewalkers International. Welcome, Judy. Thank you, Darren. I'm really happy to be here. My second guest for the episode is Julia Storberg-Walker, Department Chair, Department of Human and Organizational Learning at George Washington University. For the past four years, Julia has been led to redefine herself and her work in leadership studies, 
while her work history suggests a sustained commitment to legitimizing diverse ways of leading through theorizing and teaching and justice through critical gender research and activism, she's now in a place where she sees the immense value of contemplative practices in leading justice and peace and is transferring her deep experience with research, grants, educating, and leading from an exclusive scholarly focus to a more pracademic one. Welcome, Julia. Lovely to be here. And my third guest for the episode is Suki Tai, who has years of experience leading family businesses and multinationals. Suki now spends time with Aitia Institute and Global Consciousness Institute, advocating quantum leadership and new socioeconomic models for well-being of systems. Suki believes that leaders require a shift from doing to being and has pondered such questions as where is East, where is West, what does it mean to be Chinese, and who am I in this world? Welcome, Suki. Thank you. Really happy to be here with all of you. Okay, well, I'd like to start off our conversation today by exploring the term spirituality so that listeners are clear on that, ready for when we dig deeper into the relationship between spirituality and HRD. So what do we mean by that term spirituality? Spirituality to me, whenever that word arises, attracts very different responses. To me, it's deeply intuitive, but not easily defined. So I'm going to try to describe it. It transcends time and space. It permeates boundaries. And I would say that till the industrialization era, there has been iterations of spirituality and oneness. So things that's often associated with being one with the universe. I am in the universe and the universe is in me. Um, in the East, um, especially in China, this is like the Tao. It was the source of everything. And um, in many traditional practices and indigenous practices, it's also the source, you know, the logos for, 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 for many people. Then there's spirituality and religion. And um, this is when spirituality lives inside us. And religion is like a community. It's, um, for example, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, um, Jesus, Bible Church. So it was about the individual, the values, and then the community. And then as we progress, the spirituality is associated to culture. To me, I look at that as um, how the social, family, and belief systems of all informs and shapes our individual spirituality. And of late, closest to us nowadays is spirituality and well-being. Old and new word um, is a concept that's been renewed by quantum science. So this concept of holism and interconnection where I can be well when everything around me is well and everything around me can be well when I am well. You know, these are all concepts of spirituality that binds different relationships together. So I would say that in the word spirituality, when we use it in our modern world, we normally use it whenever we are unable to rationalize or find meaning to how we see and perceive the world. Those things we relate to it as spirituality, such as we may have inner peace, um, joy, bliss, calmness, meaning, um, but whatever it is, it's always associated to something bigger and beyond the eye. So there's normally transcendence, like lifting above what we thought was possible, you know, like a natural helping hand or even a healing hand that is invisible or more powerful that is at work behind. And um, when we actually start to define our role, spirituality is about living the purpose. Uh, when we talk about care, spirituality is about nurturing. When it's performing, it's about adding value and contributing. And when we're talking about learning, it's always about growing. Um, this is how I would describe spirituality. And I, it's not a definition. And um, it is how I see and feel when I feel spirituality manifested in this world. That's fantastic, Suki. Uh, that, that's the best definition and description I think I have ever heard. I can't think of anything to add to that, but maybe um, a framework for it that comes out of my work when I ran the Center for Spirit at Work and we gave an award to companies that were open about having spirituality be a part of the way they did work. 
And we define spirituality in the workplace as having two components. And the first is a horizontal definition of spirituality. And that fits in with what you were saying, Suki, about care. And it means caring for others and caring for, it could be caring for other people in the workplace, caring for other people on the planet, caring for the animal kingdom, but it means caring and wanting to make a positive difference to others outside oneself and feeling really connected, a oneness, a part, a part of the others. And the second is the vertical dimension of spirituality, and that's connection to what you described as the mystery, the unseen, the energy, the invisible. So there's the horizontal dimension of connection to others, and then the vertical direction of connecting to something greater than ourselves um, and something that really provides guidance to us and spiritual practices are our way of connecting to both both vertically and, and horizontally so that we take the time to go inside and listen to what wants to emerge. So that's, that's something I would provide as a structure to all the beautiful things you said. That is so cool. And what's coming to me about the horizontal and vertical is the idea of transcendent animament or incarnate. That's the, the mystery or the magic. Um, Suki, I loved when you said something about it's, it's the energy, that aliveness, right, that comes through our physical body. And Suki, in your discussion, you talked about, I can't really define it, but I can feel it. You said the word feel a lot, and um, I experience it. And when I think of that, right, when it's an incarnate in my body and through my experiences in community and family and work, then it'll open space for repair and healing to be part of the spiritual journey. And many times people talk about a definition of spirituality as joy and bliss. And yes, and there is that. And there's suffering. Buddha talked about suffering. Jesus suffered on the cross. In many different wisdom traditions, there's, there's um, this mix again of transcendent and embodied experience. And so I think spirituality might also be the, a space of transformation and learning and healing and a deep inner source of connection to all and um, flowing wholeness back and forth at a quantum level um, energetically. So the for me, the spirituality also is that what John of the Cross would call the, the dark night of the soul and how one emerges with more strength and more surrender, more courage, more commitment, more compassion. Um, there's a lot of C words we're talking about you know, Julia, when I hear you um, coming with all the C's, one of the things that emerges is there is this, um, I remember this um, Athena doctrine that was like written, published in 2013 by um, John Gazima. And it talks about the qualities of um, the feminine qualities of leadership that is needed today. And it is nothing to do with female. It just deals with the, 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 the soft and the spiritual part of it that is present in all of us. And it's just a matter of bringing that up because that is what nurtures that connection and that relationship. And that is so powerful because that is from the business. That's, that's from the work. That's the research that came out from what are the qualities that make a difference, you know, and towards the now, you know, the, the space where industrialization is coming to a time where we're looking for something different for leadership. Like what are the qualities of leadership that is, um, and with so many um, female in the um, business world, it has really brought a different dynamic that can bring a very different perspective. So when I hear you talking about that, that's what's, that's kind of like, I, I, I have this emergence. It's like, wow, that's so powerful. 
Thank you. And, and to build on that, Suki, usually spirituality is considered a more feminine way of uh, seeing the world. Not female, but feminine or softer or, you know, thinking of yin and yang. It is more yin. It is more receptive and intuitive and um, a, a other way of knowing, a different way of knowing to build on Julia's work on, on indigenous ways of knowing and, and so on. Um, and Julia, I have another C word for you that comes from a Silicon Valley CEO um, that talked about his experience when his company didn't get a big contract and he had to do the first layoff in the company. And he describes that as a crucible that these dark nights of the soul that leaders can experience can be a real crucible, a real testing of their spirit and who they are and what they stand for. And a real, um, you know, it's like burning in the fires and out of that can come something very beautiful. And another C word that can come out of that crucible is compassion. That having had those very difficult and painful experiences uh, can lead to compassion for others, a real sensitivity to their experience and, and wanting to care for them and their suffering as mm. well. I love that, that this crucible, what comes to me is, is that's kind of the container for the paradox of opportunity and lack or joy and suffering, ego and surrender, softness and hardness. And this is important, as you said, for leaders and corporations and businesses, um, that if a leader is open to this crucible, think about the potential ramifications or consequences for, just example, for um, DEI initiatives in the organization, um, for equity in the organization, for um, considering social goods, perhaps for internalizing what businesses call um, externalities, right? I'm gonna take this water from the river and I don't need to really worry about the, the waste product that I, that I generate when I, when I create my products. If leaders understand their true beingness in, um, in harmony with all of nature, you know, resource decisions and extraction kind of uh, mentalities of extracting resources uh, in, from the ecosystem and with an unbridled growth mindset would really shift. I wonder if that actually transitions us nicely into um, into then exploring spirituality and what that means for for HRD and the and it, it feels a big step to go all that way. So I'm wondering if we take a a half step first and and kind of build on that piece of your conversation and and first explore what you see as the relationship between spirituality and the concepts of work and the workplace so, so so what do you see as that relationship and and perhaps how that relationship has changed over the years i think of it as something that occurs at different levels of analysis uh, and in the research that i've done there are growing numbers of people that see their work itself as a spiritual path, as what they're meant to do, as a sense of calling. And this doesn't require any kind of organizational support or human resource policies or anything. It's an internal experience of finding meaning and purpose in the work itself. Um, people who take this view of their own spirituality and their workplace uh, will often look at different values and how they can live their spiritual values in their work. They may have individual spiritual practices or at their desk or in their workplace they might have symbols of their faith. So that there can be this very individual experience of spirituality and work. Uh, and then it can go to the team level where it is more overtly expressed in the workplace, where the team, all of us have had memorable experiences in teams or groups 
where there's this real sense of team spirit. And often that word of team spirit is used kind of in the sports analogy. But even in sports, there is this mysterious magic, this connection, this flow that happens in a team that's hard to explain. It's hard to say how you make that happen. But when you've got that, you know it. You can see it in the results of the way the team works together and the inspiration that comes and the commitment. Uh, and at the team level, there usually are some kind of shared spiritual practices. Like at Eileen Fisher, a clothing company that's been um, really highlighted as a company based on spiritual principles and practices, every meeting starts with um, usually the ringing of a bell or a prayer bowl and a moment of silence. And then every meeting starts with personal check-in, just a real quick check-in, but the, the sharing that, that every person here matters and their personal life and who they are and what's going on for them matters. The next level is the organizational culture and looking at the whole system uh, where organizations are committed to the greater good. And, and this is what my organization, the Center for Spirit at Work that I used to run, that's, that's the kind of company we looked at when we gave the Spirit at Work Awards. Their open commitment to the flourishing, the spiritual flourishing of everyone inside and outside the organization. Um, and then as Julia mentioned, there's a real sense of spiritual leadership in these organizations, that they're, they're guided by beautiful principles um, and practices, and that these values get embedded in the culture, not in a dogmatic way, but in a way that's inclusive, that, that um, everyone can feel connected to. These kinds of organizations at this, this level will have intentional programs that help develop the person both professionally and spiritually. And I think Julie will be getting into more directly some of the policies and procedures around hiring and development and um, those kinds of human resource practices that can beautifully embrace the spiritual practices and spiritual values into the organization without putting the organization uh, in a litigious situation, which is one of the things many organizations fear. Um, but there is a very wise and inclusive way to be able to create those kinds of policies and programs and practices. There, there was something that really came up that I want to like kind of like build on what you said. And there was something that was about teams. And I remember this was something that um, was said to me and I remember it very well. It says that in a team where the company and everyone is together, we are out there making sure that everyone is all right versus being out there, ensuring that everyone is doing things right. I mean, that brings me to, you know, the principles of, um, of individual and organization, individual and team and organization. So it's always this big tussle about what I can contribute, how my KPIs are met versus the company's target. And it's always, uh, it always seems to be mutually exclusive. Either is me or the team, when in actual fact, in, in this context that you were describing, what came up is that it's actually totally um, in continuum. It doesn't have to be mutually. In fact, it is only when the individual is flourishing, that's when the organization is flourishing. And I actually put that down to meaning and purpose. So as an individual, I need to have meaning in what I do but I need to be directed by a purpose that, that is a collective. And that's the alignment that is so necessary because in that alignment, when we find that alignment, that's when the relationship and the flow, just the magic just emerges. The workspace is a place where um, being human plays out. And um, we talked about what is spirituality. It's, it's, um, I would say it's being a divine human and um, being anchored in, in 
in the sacred in the workspace and um, uh, becoming together in the workplace fully human and um, um, there's there's you, you you said Suki about it's just an, a direction right the, the corporate goal is just a direction um, and I think when individuals teams and organizations have an orientation like a direction they have an orientation um, to compassion to care to courage to healthy relationships is another thing I heard to creativity when they're oriented like that they're becoming more fully their divine human self and they're supporting each other along their journeys you know when I look back on the history of all this it, it seems to me that in the early 90s was the first time you started to see any kind of academic articles on work and spirituality and it was the first time that business magazines in 1992 all of them came out with these amazing articles on workplace spirituality with a lot of different examples of companies and and leaders and um, and it was around that time that Raj Sisodia began working with John Mackey on conscious capitalism and that trend just grew and grew the, the numbers of articles and the number of people speaking and then conferences and that's when I started the Center for Spirit at Work um, other organizations were forming that grew dramatically until around the year 2000 and um, we mentioned lawsuits a little bit earlier and there started to be these um, lawsuits around religious expressions in the workplace which put a big damper on discussions of spirituality and 9-11 hit and the recession hit and it seemed like um, there was a dip in this growth of talking about consciousness and spirituality in the workplace uh, and then the whole mindfulness movement started and that has been um, very, very powerful because the word spirituality can sometimes have uh, connotations of religion in a negative way that makes particularly some human resource directors a little anxious and, um, and those corporate lawyers. But mindfulness doesn't seem to have that kind of baggage. And then there's a, a bunch of research around mindfulness that focused originally on stress reduction and positive health outcomes and then more recently is focusing on leadership and creativity and, and more positive outcomes for organizations. So that's been more the current trend is to talk about mindfulness rather than spirituality. Um, although many organizations still will talk about it openly. Yeah, it's, um, that's, that's, that's so true. I mean, today, most of us, we are all victims of our own um, condition tendencies, our human construct. We all have lenses to things that we see, to the things that we hear. And when we are not aware, and this whole mindfulness practice really brings that awareness and the meta-awareness into um, really the forefront of everything. This is, this is so powerful in human development. One of the things that is very um, like for ITIA and for IMC overall, the fragile um, leads. One of the things that is being considered and being really um, put to the forefront is like, how does the remuneration, how does the new remuneration and reward and recognition system would look like in this context? Because it drives behaviors. And we have always been measuring according to KPIs, something that's deterministic, something that is very, you know, um, definitive and defining. So it'll be very interesting to see how this aspect of the development actually comes about because there is a part of it that is not exactly where we are comfortable with, you know, of saying that, oh, that person is actually behaving in a way that is going to be for the good, you know, or for the collective. I think it's um, fascinating. Um to think about KPIs and driving behavior, um, and the what what comes to me is um, what our colleague Chris Lazo would say: the Newtonian paradigm of cause and effect, logic, rationality, and logical thinking. 
you know, if we do this, then this happens. If we um, create this recognition and reward system, you know, this will happen. And um, new quantum theorizing is, is destabilizing that cause and effect logic. And quantum theory is moving into business and management literature, um, both scholarly literature and, and you know, um, books with many ideas. This isn't new. This was um, um, Meg Wheatley and um, Dana Zohar in the 1990s um, uh, brought in quantum ideas to organizing and organization science and leadership. Quantum theorizing and quantum reality um, um, challenges the linear cause and effect logic that businesses um, have become so efficient in, right? And what might happen when um, when one kind of surrenders to or releases the cause and effect logic and really embraces the ontological turn towards the quantum shift um, in business and management? And what happens in educational systems when that happens? Um, Karen O'Brien wrote, wrote a good book called You Matter More Than You Think. Um, an individual can start a ripple effect in the quantum realm that, that can be amplified. Um, Albert Einstein didn't like the quantum. He said it was like um, weird science, but um, empirical uh, findings um, over and over are, are challenging the separation between researcher and researched. And what that means is it's challenging the separation between manager and employee, right? Because we co-create and we co-become and we co-participate in creating the new future. And, and I'd like to give you an example of the nonlinear relationship between reward and quantum leadership. Um, when I was um, worked at Honeywell in the 1980s, there was a plant that was led by a leader named Chet Kenrich. And Chet had a transformational experience that moved him from being kind of a militaristic leader to being a leader of love. He became a very loving man, and the whole culture in his plant shifted. And his plant was a lower-paying plant in terms of the reward system. And people from, um, this was in, in Phoenix, and people from another plant in Phoenix that Honeywell had, maybe they had like 11 plants in the area, everybody wanted to move to Chet's plant, and they would take a pay cut to work with Chet and with his team, because the sense of oneness and the sense of energy and the sense of inspiration and the, um, he really empowered people. And, and so they moved from environments of fear to an environment of love. And that gets us back to a basic spiritual principle that you can, in the Course in Miracles, they talk about choose love, not fear. And fear is the underpinnings of the way so many people lead, and it's a downward spiral. Love is an upward spiral. In the Bible, there's, I think, nine or 11 times when an angel shows up, and then the angel's first words when they appear to someone are, fear not. And W. Edwards Deming I think his eighth principle in the workplace was drive out fear. And I see all of that as really interconnected and um, very spiritual. We'll be back in a moment with more from Judy, Julia, and Sukiyi as we dig into the relationship between HRD and spirituality. First, though, here's an important reminder that this episode is brought to you thanks to the wonderful sponsorship support of the Board of the Academy of Human Resource Development, which encourages you to consider joining and becoming a member. AHRD is a professional home, a place to learn, teach and share, a space to research, publish and present, a network of scholars, teachers, researchers and practitioners to connect and to apply the art and science of human resource development to change organizations and transform the world through human flourishing. 
With almost 500 members, AHRD is a global organization made up of, governed by, and created for the human resource development scholarly community of academics and reflective practitioners. Membership includes online access to four peer-reviewed world-class journals, two decades of conference proceedings with cutting-edge research and thought leadership, and much more. To learn all about becoming a member of AHRD, visit the Member Central page at ahrd.org. Right, let's return to our discussion for the second half of the episode. Welcome back to our episode on HRD and spirituality, where I'm joined by Judy Neal, Julia Stolberg-Walker, and Suki Tai. So before the break, we were talking about the connection between spirituality and the workplace. And I'm thinking that now is the right time in the episode to focus the discussion in on HRD. So what do you see as the connection then between spirituality and HRD? And maybe how does the research theory and practice in one influence the research theory and practice in the other? I did a little... um... Uh, database searching to see how many articles had the subject term spirituality in the HRD journals. And um, HRDQ has two, HRDR has three, Advances has five, and HRDI has three. So it's not a significant dialogue or discussion in the HRD journals. However, I found a gem, um, a forum piece from 1997. Um, So it wasn't a peer-reviewed, it didn't show up in that search that I did. Um, In HRDQ, written by Bill Kenweiler and Fred Otte. And I'd like to read a kind of long quote, because this is 25 years ago it was written. And they wrote, Work is a spiritual journey for many of us, although we talk about it in different ways. Some prefer to use humanistic language. Others are New Agers. Traditional religious frameworks feel appropriate for other people. Many do not quite fit any system at all, but everyone who is engaged in these discussions senses the spiritual dimensions of work. If we articulate and share our visions and values, we can organize and direct our spiritual experience. If HRD professionals ask questions about both the field and our relationship to spirituality, we may facilitate the emergence of these visions and the articulation of these values. HRD needs a foundation of personal and professional values to move it towards greater maturity. Discussions such as those in this article may help clarify the belief systems, images, and dreams that give us energy as individuals and to the HRD field. Energy for continuing development. By not having these discussions, we are not articulating these kind of visions, values, and dreams. 25 years ago, there was a call for these kind of discussions, and so I'm glad that we're having them now. Theories in HRD, as you know, has been my specialty over the years, and one of the important things that I'd like to introduce is the idea of epistemology. How do we know what we know? And specifically, social epistemology. This goes to our values, our beliefs, and our dreams how we know what we know and how we make decisions as HRD scholars and practitioners and researchers, framed by um, different theoretical understandings and constructs. Many of you may remember the discussions between um, Richard Swanson, who was my dissertation chair, and Gary McLean. Um, Should HRD be uh, represented by the three-legged stool? The theoretical foundations would be psychology, systems, and economic theories, or be represented by a centipede with many long legs of many different theoretical foundations. Neil Shalofsky, a colleague of mine at GW, said that in 2004 that the, the anchor of HRD was people, learning, and organizations. And you know, his body of work on meaningful work Um, um, led the field in that direction, and meaningful work does touch upon spirituality. So there's many entry points, both from a theoretical sense, but also an empirical research sense. For example, 
Um, if you look at the knowledge generation cycle, you have exploration of, of, of concepts and, and you need to um, understand them. And so you start with qualitative research. But if you, if, you, if you follow that along the knowledge production cycle, you move from exploring and then you start to ask questions about measuring and how do we, how do we measure it. And um, so then quantitative research can, do, can come in. And so I found that some people um, outside of HRD are starting to do construct validation studies on these kind of esoteric or squishy kind of concepts. And they're doing great work, and a lot of them have been published in the Journal of Management, Spirituality, and Religion, JMSR. And that's um, a journal I highly recommend HRD scholars to look into for ideas. I guess I'd like to invite my colleagues, now that you've heard me talk a little bit about HRD, what's coming to you? when you think about how can we help HRD focus on this area a bit more. What I would add to what you've said is a focus on the D in the HRD, the, the development, and the growing number of human development theories and how those can be useful to, hum, to professionals in the HRD field when looking at leadership development or team development and to understand these models that are research-based, uh, like spiral dynamics and Ken Wilber's work and um, Bill Torbert's work, and there's a number of them out there, and to design programs to help bring people from one level of growth to the next level uh, in order for them to be have more well-being in the work, to find more meaning in the work, but also to be better leaders. And, um, you know, and the idea around leadership these days is not just tying it to a role, but that everyone is a leader, and that we're moving from a consciousness of separation uh, and somebody being more hierarchical to a, a, a model of oneness where we're all in this together, that it's a collaborative, collective, uh, working together in organizations. And so there's a shift in consciousness. So the consciousness models can really help uh, in terms of designing human development programs inside an organization. India has been particularly good at this if we want to look at international models. And Suki is also very involved in the quantum leadership program in, out of Singapore and China. And so, Suki, maybe you've got some things to add to what I've said, but also to what Julia has said. One thing to add to, um, to this is like, if we want to talk about development, maybe we should take one step back and ask, what is work? What is meaningful work? You know, let's talk about what is work, and then maybe what is meaningful work. Because once we start exploring that, then we can actually put in the development piece into, into it. And to me, to me, work is an action. It is something that we do with our physical body. And it's something that um, we need to act so that there is a result. So there is a movement, there is a motion that we do with our body, which is what we do all the time. However, when we add meaning to it, the intention becomes so important. And if I look back at meaningful work and economics in human resource development today, one of the things that um, arise is um, when Adam Smith talked about his economic and capitalist model, it was the invisible hand. And the invisible hand was really the reason why we do things, the ethics behind it. And um, that is so um, hard to pinpoint what is ethics because when we go into ethics, it's like what is right and wrong? And then when we overlay wisdom and spirituality on top, then we begin, I began to actually emerge this concept of practice. And that is um, when we are conscious and there's a shift in consciousness, what is ethical doesn't need to be told. It comes from within. We know what is ethical that drives our action. And that's when it becomes our being actually informs our actions. And it is not about a separation of from doing to being. It's actually embodying the doing within the being. 
And when we do that, we are actually doing meaningful work. And to me, work is meaningful when we feel we are making impact and we are adding value, when I'm contributing to a larger purpose. Because that's when there is there is there is something that's important to me. And that brings meaning to people. So in um when we talk about overall leadership and organization, um, in today's perspective, we often relate to work as you know, going to work and contributing to a business purpose and so on and so forth. Um, when everything is inseparable. In actual fact, the business institution is part of the living system and the living system is where we all live in. So when I work in an organization or in, um, in a business, I'm contributing to the living system. And, um, and that actually comes back to some of the things that, you know, a lot of times we hear about the zero-sum game. Oh, this is a zero-sum game, whether it is, you know, um, it is um I contribute um I win you lose you know and that sort of thing but in the quantum field today, adding value means that I am actually adding information to the next larger system that I am impacting, and when I am in that next larger system and I add to the next system I'm all I'm always growing, and I'm always expanding. And that, to me, adding value is what we want to actually get employees in an organization to understand that we all have our gifts and we all have our ability to add value. So we are not homogeneous. We all have our individual gifts that we are entrusted with. We all have our experiences and our competencies that we have acquired. And we all have different roles in the society or in the business where we can add value. So when we find that alignment, then employees are engaged. In HR development, I believe that that employee engagement is that alignment. So from a individual perspective, I'm always focusing on how do I use what I have to add value. From a company and organization um, perspective, I'm always thinking of how to manage all my resources, including human resources. I hate to use the word resources on human, but you know, it's commonly um commonly used just like HR development is human resource development. But we are actually looking at um talents, how to use those talents to be deployed to achieve a common objective. And from a leadership perspective, the leadership is actually providing that direction for that vision so that there is a common objective. So this is the built up of the individual to the management, to the leadership and to this larger living system. And to me, HR development is that alignment and social engagement is that alignment. Um, everything that we are doing and we are equipped to be is very important because without the basic competencies, nothing gets done. However, just with the competencies and our gifts, without that alignment, work is not meaningful. And when work is not meaningful, it is very, very hard to actually say we're going to add value and grow together. So I feel that HR development on the spirituality area is developing that alignment and awakening our inner calling because our inner calling as every individual have our existential question that we need to ask ourselves. And we all have a different level of consciousness, not higher or lower, but just a different level of consciousness that fits our purpose and our needs in this particular time. One of the things I'd like to throw in the pot here is, um, and I'm, I'm thinking of the, the scholars in HRD that, that kind of come from a critical perspective um, who want to ensure equity and dig dignity um, in the workspace. And um, um, for, for those scholars, in, in what may be interesting is to critique the idea that organ organizations can manage the soul. And I'm using air quotes here. Um, and that um, there's there's uh, 
scholar Tourist said that um, the powerful will craft meaning for the powerless. And so for, I know there's a strong contingent of critical scholars in HRD and that um, this is an area of, of opportunity for them to bring their critical theoretical frameworks into spirituality and meaningful work. In addition, there's, there's, a, there's an upsetting of the typical work relationships. The nature of work is changing. A lot of workers have precarious employment and the onus for work is focusing more and more on the individual rather than the organization you know, the contingent workforce, the gig economy. And so that really has implications for organizations and individuals to rethink from a critical perspective the idea of meaningful work and, and how to foster it and how to um, bring in the idea of spirituality. As I listen to this, it, it, it makes me wonder about next steps for hrd professionals as in a fair number of the people listening to this episode um, will be in hrd practice in some way either as internal employees to a company or alternatively they're acting as a consultant to an organization and, and i'm wondering what advice you have for those folks on specific steps they could take related to spirituality in the workplace well, I think that one of the first things they need to do, and we're getting practical now, is to assess whether or not the organization is ready for any kind of implementation of workplace spirituality programs. And uh, an organization that's going through a lot of turmoil, um, if there were union issues, if there's layoffs, if there's um, really difficult times and difficult struggles is probably not ready for any kind of workplace spirituality program. They've got to get themselves to kind of an equilibrium of health before building on that in order to have a, a spiritual program, just like it would be for an individual on a spiritual journey. If you're in a very difficult time in your life, it becomes quite hard to think about yourself as a spiritual being. You're just trying to struggle and survive. So you've got to get beyond that survival mode, both individually and collectively, in order to um, implement any kind of workplace spirituality programs. And if you feel that your organization is healthy and ready for this, I think the first step is to assess where you are, just like we would do if we were doing a total quality management program or a diversity program or any other kind of HRD approaches. And there are several assessment tools out there, both quantitative and qualitative, that can give you feedback on where your organizations are and where, where your organization is and where the employees are and what they might be interested in. And you could also do focus groups and other kinds of qualitative approaches. So that would be one thing, to assess where you are and then figure out what kind of programs might be useful. So a lot of re typical responses would be to create workshops, to have retreats, um, and a lot of uh, companies focus on values and might identify what are the spiritual values collectively of this company. And I would recommend that an HRD professional really look at the, organi at the organization in a systemic way uh, and approach any kind of program from a combination of top-down and bottom-up and having a plan for like a two- or three-year development. Uh, and I think it would be very valuable for an HRD professional to visit, to take a team, the implementation team, and to go visit organizations that have already done this. And there are organizations all over the world who have found different ways of implementing and integrating spirituality into the culture of the organization. Uh, I created a list that uh, was sponsored by Fetzer Institute that is available for free uh, that looks at what company, what practices companies are doing all around the world, uh, and 
so if anybody's interested in getting that, they can email me at Judy, J-U-D-I, at edgewalkers.org, um, and I'd be happy to share that because I think if we know other companies are doing certain things, it helps overcome our own fear of trying something new. And uh, I think the last piece of advice I would give around uh, implementing and taking steps is to take a deep look at the diversity issue around faith and spirituality. And many companies do that through various kinds of employee groups. So you might have a Christian group and a Buddhist group and so on. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how can you honor that some people have faith and some don't, some people are comfortable with the word spirituality and some aren't. And how do you create an environment, if you're developing spirituality in HRD, how do you develop an environment that honors people where they are uh, and is not trying to um, choose one particular path over another? I think HR, um, people in HR development who are actually looking into the spirituality will be more effective if they go through the process themselves. Because when we experience that nothing beats that experience because that brings up the wisdom and we become part of that field when we are actually practicing and being. And there are practices, um, basic practices, whether it is um, uh, daily practices, just simple um, stillness practices and connection practices that are so important that we can actually just, you know, um, just try out as part of, um, we can call it well-being, but, you know, that's part of our wellness. Um, something simple that feels comfortable uh, for the HR development um, group, as well as anybody who is um, interested to actually bring ourselves to some form of stillness because it is from there that our wisdom arises. Another thing that actually came up when I, when I was um, thinking about that and connecting to the field is using different language. What is the field? The field is a way we are radiating energy and connecting with each other. And this field that we are creating actually is a result of the relationships we have, how we relate to each other. How we relate to each other actually determines how strong or how healthy the connection is and therefore how healthy the feel is and how much wisdom we can actually get from each other. A third thing that actually came up from there is in an organization or in any groups, this connection and this relationship is actually a result of conversations or networks of conversations that we have and conversations that's not necessarily you mean words. It's just how we are actually talking, sending messages to each other. And it brought up the um, um, another field of work that, um, uh, that is done by um, Robert Dunham on, from Generative Leadership. And he actually has got this um, 10 different types of conversations, healthy conversations that high-performance organizations have. And these conversations actually is a very strong base for organizations to identify how they can actually reinforce the relationships and at the same time allow um, team as well as individual coaching to actually become to be embodied in the organization to support that transformation and that cultivation. So that is another um, area that um, I'm actually studying and working on right now with um, my clients. And um, it is actually amazing because we used to have engagement survey, but when we have conversation survey, it becomes very tangible. Like what type of conversations are missing? How do you have those conversations? What kind of moods actually is created from those conversations? And that creates a very, very strong connection of how to actually mend or reconnect the missing links that creates the field. So um, I thought that that, that was quite um, quite uh, something that I've been I've been working on recently, and I thought that that would be another tool that you know could be um, explored. Wow, Suki, I love I love that because um, communication studies is another field that 
um, could be really relevant to HRD. And um, in that, I did see that that was one of the the, um, the fields of, of study that and practice that matter. Um, building on what you said about the field, David Bohm is a famous physicist who passed away in the 1990s, and um, um, he towards towards the end of his career, he realized exactly what you were saying about how how energetically through you know our our nonverbal but also our verbal the way we talk to each other creates this field this relational kind of field that surrounds us and um, he actually created a language to offer to try to try to um, build capacity in human beings to to maximize their possibility of of that deep relational field what some people would call the source or wisdom right and we can also learn a lot from indigenous perspectives um, about this um, for example in language um, Robin Wall Kimmerer um, I believe in braiding sweetgrass um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a botanist um, trained scientist and also a member of the Haudenosaunee tribe Forgive me if I'm misspeaking that um, name. But she said that um, her language, her native language, was like 75% verbs and 25% um, nouns. Um, our language of separation is about 20% verbs and 80% nouns. So we have discrete objects that we talk about with each other that is a barrier to this kind of flow of communication and knowing. And Bohmian dialogue, David Bohm's Bohmian dialogue process um, goes into that indigenous perspective. And he talked to a lot of indigenous elders in, in his work and saw a lot of similarities between quantum theory and quantum empirical research and the indigenous practices that have been going on for centuries regarding communication. So, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting and dynamic field, and it's really cutting edge at this point. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, it's it's so important to have a larger perspective than just this traditional uh, what we're taught in schools. But to, you know, and in fact, the three of us are really wanting to expand education, management education, leadership education, human resource education to incorporate these views. I want to get back to the, the question of what HRD um, professionals can actually do, what are steps, um, and, and offer a couple of principles that I've learned from observing different organizations. And the first and basic one is there always should be a rule of no proselytizing. And I think this gets back to the, the spiritual journey of the HRD professional when we find in our own spiritual journey that a particular viewpoint, practice, faith, tradition really moves us, we want to share that. But that is going to have to be something to be very careful about because of the power position that someone who is an executive or if they're coaching the CEO around these spirituality programs, that that's really... Um, that's walking into dangerous territory and actually could lead to legal issues. And so it's, it's that bigger um, principle of respecting differences that must override the sharing of one's own particular faith tradition. And that especially goes for the CEO because of his or her power position. Um, another principle is that any event that is explicitly a spiritual practice or mindfulness practice or um, some anything that could be defined as a spiritual approach to things must be voluntary as a way of respecting those who um, are not comfortable with the spiritual approach. So it's essential that there's never any coercion to making people, everyone, attend a particular program or approach. Uh, and one of the things I've learned also is if you're holding a conversation that has to be, that is focusing on faith or spirituality, it is much healthier to focus on 
what someone practices, not what they believe. When you get into beliefs, then you get into conflict. When you get into practices, you get into connection. So that would be my last piece of advice at this moment. Well, that feels like a wonderful way, actually, of wrapping up the episode. And I think it gives people plenty to reflect on. As unfortunately, we've run out of time for the conversation today, but I, I really enjoyed our time together. And I wanted to thank all three of you for being a part of such an interesting episode and for exploring HRD and spirituality. Thank you all so much indeed. Thank you, Darren. Thanks so much for inviting us. This has been delicious. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Judy Neal, Julia Stolberg-Walker, and Sugi Tai. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 22 episodes in the first two seasons, and we're releasing a further 11 here in the third. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 75 leading HRD scholars from around the world. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode when we're exploring the relationship between HRD and psychology with the help of Dr. Caleb Seong-hyun Han of the University of Georgia in the United States, Dr. Kieron McFadden of Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland, and Dr. Marianne von Vierkom of the Erasmus University in the Netherlands. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.